Wonderful. That's it. Have a seat. Children's churches, there children, no, there's no children's churches. No. All, right. All right, so this thing is not going on. No light. Is this thing, wor- that thing's working now. Okay, good, I can take this off. The Lord uh, equips the uh, the willing anyway, certainly not the, uh, I am not the equipped to use this, that's for sure. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. Morning. It is a glorious day out there, and with all due respect to Fernando, this year is much better than last year because we haven't had two major snowstorms by the end of September. Yes. Amen, exactly right, yeah. See, I, I am a big fan of God's creation and that when he assigns dates for the seasons, I expect summer to last until the last day of summer and then fall to be a transition, but not to get major snowstorms in summer. So here we are. Well, it is wonderful to be here, wonderful to be sharing the word of God. What's the matter? Okay. All right. Is that better now? Yeah, okay. Yeah. But why doesn't this work then? Lyle, why don't you fix this one? Well, it is wonderful to be able to come into God's presence, into the presence of the heavenly host this morning to worship God, to praise him, and to listen to the word that he has given to us. It is all the more wonderful to be able to do it in the presence of friends here online, Old friends that are back after a while, uh, new friends that are here visiting and maybe checking out the church to see whether this is a place that they want to make their spiritual home here in Hot Springs. The last uh, three sermons uh, that I gave had to do with the way to kingdom life and the narrow and the broad way and the narrow and the broad gate, false prophets, sayers versus doers, wise and foolish builders, and the Word, the Word of God. We learned about ask, seek, and knock for kingdom qualities to be given to us by God, and God would grant those petitions. We learned about deciding, deciding to take the narrow gate, deciding to put our faith in Jesus Christ, deciding on the way of obedience, and deciding to build our house on the rock, to avoid false prophets and wolves. And today we're going to learn about God's word and we're going to learn about how we are, in fact, at war in the church. The church is under attack. But we have the one weapon that prevails against all, which is God's word. So Romans 10.17 says, so I know that's not the verse up there, but um, Romans 10.17 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ, the word of Christ. And so for all these warnings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount of the things that we need to do, say, act, decide, we have to go to God's word. How do we get faith? 
It is a gift from God granted to those to whom he elects to salvation. Where does faith come from? Faith comes from hearing the word of Christ. We get in the narrow gate from the word. We hear and believe the gospel. And we stay on the narrow way from the word, God's word, which is sufficient and efficient to guide our steps. And it all sounds pretty easy. Stay, on, stay in the word and you're safe. But wait, there's more, as they say. There's more. Because building and being on the rock does not mean being on some lofty perch above the fray, above the stormy seas, and finding ourselves safe up there from the attacks of the world and from the things that are going on. Being on the rock means that we have a firm foundation from which we can do battle with the world and we can do battle with Christ's weapons in the word. And make no mistake, we are at war. Nehemiah 4.14 tells us, um, he was talking to the returning exiles, I uh, told them to be brave and fight. They were being threatened by the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashadites, who had threatened to kill the returning exiles and to stop the work on the wall around Jerusalem. Nehemiah was dedicated to rebuilding the wall for safety. And Nehemiah tells the exiles, do not be afraid of these people. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Nehemiah reminded the Israelites that they had the mighty warrior, the creator of the universe, the king of all creation on their side, and he exhorted them to fight. In 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Paul, in that passage, was warning the Corinthians of the false apostles and the false teachers who had infiltrated the church and were seeking to discredit him and to preach a gospel which was not the true gospel of Jesus Christ. So these two admonitions, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, Remind us that as Christians, we are in a war and we must be prepared to fight in that war. This is not a new war that started with wokeism or all these other things. This is a war that has been going on since the Garden of Eden with Satan against God's people. Jesus himself told us that we would be persecuted and that we would have tribulations in this war. The weapons of our warfare are the truth of the gospel and the word of God and the unity of the body. Of each of us, just remember, two are better than one. A threefold cord is not easily broken. We know, we must know what we believe and who said it, why we can depend upon what we read, and why we needn't be ashamed to tell other people about this truth that we know from God's word. Now, if you think back to Tyler's first sermon here many months ago, it was on 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which says, All scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, complete, equipped for every good work. So scripture, God's word, is God-breathed. It's inerrant, it's inspired, it's wise, and it's the absolute truth. The war that we fight is about the truth, is about God's word. So these days we're engaged in a battle of truth versus no truth. 
The Bible contains absolute truth. Creation by God's word alone. Adam and Eve, the original sin, a flood, a dispersion of mankind who were seeking to become gods, the selection of a person from whom the promised seed would come, Abraham, the exodus from Egypt, the conquest of the promised land, exile, but more truth, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, God incarnate coming to earth, his crucifixion for my sins, for our sins, his overcoming death, and his resurrection from the dead, salvation offered to all men, all true facts, all absolute truths offered to us by God. And the worldview that we face these days, postmodernism, says there is no true truth. There is only my truth, your truth, their truth, etc. Well, that's good. I'm glad that's your truth, but it's not my truth. Okay? That's what we face. Making an absolute truth claim that Jesus is the way, the truth, the light is considered to be closed-minded and bigoted. But we as Christians know absolute truth. We have the word of God. God told us what the truth is, and we believe that. Well, why does it matter that we know that this word of God, this Bible, is absolute truth? Well, our role as a part of God's church, this church and the church universal, is to be a light to the unbelieving nations. And when I say a light, I'm talking about individually we are called to do this. Yes, we're called to do it as this particular church body, but we're called to do it, each of us, as members of Christ's church. We're to be light to the unbelieving nations and to attract men to God. That's our job, to attract men to God. Jesus told us that we may not just hide and get behind a rock, hoping that Jesus is coming soon. No, he told us that our light should shine before men. We must stand tall and shine with the message of the gospel. But to do that, we need to feel confident about the absolute sufficiency of God's word to deal with whatever issues we may face in life and whatever issues we see around us. We are confronted with so many alternate theories, worldviews, and religions, which all tell us we've got the answer. We know how to solve these problems. They might agree with portions of God's word, but they seek to add and to take away from it. And it's important for us to hold as a bedrock belief that God's word is absolutely sufficient for all of our needs, everything we need to live in this world. Remember what we said last week about false prophets using biblical truth, but then adding to it or taking away from it. That's what's going on today. God's word is sufficient for all we face and to equip us for a life of faith. And so now we will actually read those verses. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 9. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is pure. Your word is sufficient. Your word is all that we need. We pray that you would show us that, that you would give us the confidence to believe that with every fiber of our being that we would not be ashamed to tell those around us the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Well, the Bible is all we need to equip us for a life of faith and service. 
It clearly states God's intention to restore the broken relationship between him and humanity through his son, Jesus Christ, through the gift of faith that we get from God. No other writings are necessary for this news to be understood. We don't need to have books and pamphlets and programs. And nor are there any other writings or theories or doctrines which are necessary to equip us for a life of faith. The story of the Bible is so simple that even preschoolers learn it and understand it. They know what it is. They know what it means. But we face a challenge in the church where the sufficiency of Scripture has been challenged and non-biblical writings have been merged with the Bible. You can just look around and see all of these different books that have been written. Some are helpful, some are not helpful, but they're not the Bible. These non-biblical writings are sometimes full of ungodly theology and concepts. Now, after, I think in two weeks, I'm going to begin preaching through the book of Colossians because it provides an example of Paul's teaching to a church that was being challenged by non-biblical teachings. He says in Colossians 2.8, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than Christ. Jude, at verse 3, tells the believer, Although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Well, once and for all makes it clear that no other writings, no matter how godly the writer, are equal to or complete the word of God. They are not necessary to explain the word of God. The Bible is all that is necessary to understand the character of God, the nature of man, and the doctrines of sin, heaven, hell, and salvation through Jesus Christ, because the word of the Lord is perfect. So we're going to take a look at Psalm 19 to find this proof of the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, the church has always been attacked by those who wish to change God's truth to suit themselves. Okay, That was the original sin of man, wasn't it? Listening to Satan, he said, did God really say? Okay, He twisted the word of truth to make it more palatable to man. The first century church also faced challenges, as is evident by all the letters that are in the New Testament, because they all attacked, or virtually all of them attacked, various heresies, false teachings in the new churches. The Reformation in the 1500s attacked heresies, and the traditions of man which sought to supplement or substitute for biblical truths. In the early 1900s, modernism sought to de-supernaturalize the Bible, say that, well, none of the None of the miracles are true, because those really couldn't have happened, and they sought to make the Bible into a book which contained only ethical principles, good principles, moral principles. The social gospel movement of that same time back then attacked the individual nature of sin and salvation and sought to show that the real gospel had to do with social justice and humanitarianism rather than the sin nature of man. These days... Attacks come from those promising another social gospel under the name of social justice or critical theory, which seeks to minimize the grievousness of individual sin and emphasizes the victimhood of various classes of people. The people promoting these theories do not preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, they preach justice, equity, charity, love, but they misrepresent the gospel. They leave out that little bit about sin and damnation and hell and punishment and the need for God's atoning death and resurrection. Those gospels are all about man's works, 
not about God's grace. So maybe today we'll start out by reviewing just what is the gospel? I heard a young churchgoer recently say that the gospel is to preach to the world, Jesus loves you. And that is certainly true. But that is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. The Greek word for gospel means good news. And part of the good news of the gospel is that, of Jesus Christ is that anyone can come to Christ for salvation. But to receive salvation, we must have a basic understanding of who Christ is and how he meets our needs for salvation. So an explanation of the gospel must include the following. God is the creator of all things. As his creature, man is accountable to God. God is the judge. God is perfectly holy. He is the essence of all that is good so that he cannot have any fellowship with someone who falls short of moral perfection. 1 John 1.5 says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Scripture declares at Romans 3.23 that all people have sinned against God by breaking his law and therefore fall short of the perfect standard of righteousness that God requires to have fellowship with him. Not one person is righteous, says Psalms 14 and Romans 3.10. No, not one. The resulting sentence for this lack of righteousness is death. Romans 6.23 clearly states that the wages of sin is death. Sin against an infinitely holy God demands an infinite punishment. This death is not merely physical or temporal, but it's spiritual and eternal. The just punishment for all sin, any sin, is hell for eternity. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 13, 50 and 25, 46. It's a fiery furnace with weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's what hell is. So that's the state of man, every man, hopeless, despairing. But into this horrible and hopeless state of affairs, God steps in with sovereign grace and mercy. And while man was helpless under the weight of his sin, with no way to pay the penalty and escape its results, God the Son became a man to live a perfectly righteous life that Adam had failed to live and to die a substitutionary death in the place of his people, accepting in himself the full penalty of the Father's wrath against my sin, against your sin. And after dying in the place of sinners, Jesus was buried. And on the third day, he rose from the dead because he triumphed over sin and death and he ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. What a great story. That trumps any Super Bowl comeback story or whatever it does. And yet, why are we not afraid to tell people about what about that game last night? But we can't say, what about what Jesus Christ did for us? That's what we need to do. That's what we need to do. And so while believing these facts is essential to salvation, believing alone is not sufficient. Okay? Because even demons believe true facts about God and his gospel. For a sinner to have a saving relationship in Christ, he has to respond to these facts by turning from sin and trusting in Christ for righteousness. The sinner must repent and believe in Christ. Jesus preached in Mark 1, 14 and 15. He proclaimed the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent, turn away from your sin 
Seek believing from God. Seek faith from God. Because only by repentant faith, which is a gift of God, may a sinner lay hold of this eternal life purchased by Christ. The gospel also requires that we believe there is forgiveness of sins and eternal life. In John 3.16, Jesus promises that the one who believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. The greatest promise of the Bible, of the gospel, is that sinners, once alienated from God, can be reconciled to a right relationship with him. We can get back into a relationship with the creator, God of the universe. The sinner is given the right to become a child of God, and it is an individual salvation for an individual sin. We cannot do that for anyone else, for a child, for a parent, a brother, a sister, a friend, other people in the church. It is an individual salvation. And that's the gospel according to the scriptures. So then how do we know that the scriptures are accurate? How do we know that's true? Well, and how do we conclude that the scriptures are sufficient for all of the moral issues that we face in life? Well, although Christians usually proclaim that they believe the word of God to be sufficient and inerrant, many, unfortunately, politely set it aside to live their own life how they think best. We discard the hard parts, we claim the benefits. This is like walking on the wide path, isn't it? Passing through the broad gate, not making the sacrifice. We gather each Sunday because we're called by God himself into his presence each Sunday. He wants us to come. He wants us to be in his presence. He wants to be among us, and he calls us because he has a word to share with us. That's what the purpose of this is, is that God's sharing his word. This word, this Bible, is God himself speaking to us. It is the God-breathed or the breath of God. Second Timothy says that we need to preach the word in season, out of season. His word is a lamp illuminating our way. Psalm 119, 105 which most people know says, your word's a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. Jesus Christ, who is the word, is our wonderful counselor from Isaiah 9, 6. He tells us all we need to know about living in accordance with God's will. Psalm 19 is testimony from God himself through the pen of David about the sufficiency of his word for every situation. God's testimony counters all false prophets who believe that God's word must be augmented with truth from other sources, mostly from them and their opinions. The psalm, this psalm presents a beautiful picture of the sufficiency of God's word. It begins, of course, with the praise of the power and glory of God the creator. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from his heat. So the psalm begins with the praise and the power and glory of God, the creator. God created all of these things. And then it rises from this in the verses that we read before to the mercy of God, the lawgiver. 
So from God the creator to God the lawgiver with his counsel and his will and his commandments and his precepts. And the psalm closes with a loving adoration of God and a prayer for justification and sanctification. In verses 11 through 14. The first one says that the creation declares the glory of God, but it doesn't say that it declares God's will. It just says it declares his glory. And it's beginning in verse 7 that we begin to see the perfect will of God revealed in his law. Verse 7 says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The law is perfect. Well, the word that's used there means spotless or complete or blameless. So it's not just perfect in the sense there's nothing wrong with it, but it's absolutely complete as well. It's, his law is absolutely well-meaning. It's altogether directed toward the well-being of man. It is comprehensive. It is complete. It embodies all that's necessary for one's spiritual life. Place next to God's word, man's theories and rules, and we see that man's ways are imperfect, insufficient, and flawed. They don't cover the things that the Bible does. Reviving or restoring the soul. This means to bring back, to impart a newness of life, a quickening, to use an old-fashioned word. When you revive a drowned man, you're bringing him back to life. It's also a transformation of a person, making him a new and different creation, not just like a retreaded tire or a refurbished iPhone. It's a brand new creation. I know that because I became someone new when I accepted the grace of God through Jesus Christ. I know what that is. God's word offers this transformation to the one who obeys the will of God, which is declared in his word. God's law is sufficient to restore through salvation even the most broken life. David is an example of that. We all know his story. And there are others in this church who are also evidence of that, including me. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The testimony is sure. Testimony is another word for his word or his law. Sure means firm, faithful, beyond all doubt, unwavering, immovable, unassailable, reliable, worthy of trust. God's testimony is not relative. It's not a moving target. We always know exactly what God is calling us to do. It makes wise the simple. The Hebrew word for simple doesn't mean that somebody that's stupid or doesn't understand. Simple, that word means it's an open door conveying the meaning that one cannot shut his mind to fake or impure teaching or the easily led astray, a person who can't come to a decision. James describes this person in chapter 1. He says he calls him a double-minded man. The one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. That's the meaning of this word simple in the psalm. So it makes wise this simple. It provides stability to the simple, to the person who might be influenced by all of the theories that are swirling around them. And I don't know about you guys, but some of them are pretty persuasive when you read them. But God's word gives us stability against those words that sound good. They're smooth words, but they're not true. It teaches the simple that they must submit to Scripture and then teaches them how to apply it. In verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Precepts, commandments, statutes, all the same. The commandments concern man's obligation to God. When God gives us a commandment, it's about our obligation to him. 
they are right, they're upright, because they proceed from the upright and absolutely goodwill of God. They are not just a statement of what is right, but they also lead us along on a right path. So he tells us what's right, but he says, here's how to make it that way. And again, we see this tie-in with Jesus preaching about the narrow gate and the narrow path. Jesus is referring here to the same thing, that these are things that, that need to direct us along this straight way on the narrow path. And these precepts are man's guidance, almost as if God was taking us by the hand, freeing us from wobbling or tottering or stumbling, satisfying moral wants. He takes us by the hand, and he guides us lovingly through all of these pitfalls that we find. These precepts rejoice the heart. They give joyous consciousness of being in the right way towards the right goal. We've all felt that when we've done God's will, and we get that sense of joy that we can't explain, but it's there. And it's greater than joy that we get from a new car or a new fishing pole or whatever. The divine truth is true joy. Psalm 1611 says, In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So continuing on, the commandment of the law is pure, enlightening the eyes. Well, God's word is pure, which means that it's clean, clear, lucid, not mystifying, not confusing, not puzzling, sometimes hard to understand, as Second Peter says, but overall, God's word makes sense. It's a coherent story that everybody can understand. It is not a mystery. It does not require a mystical ability to figure out the meaning of it. You don't need to have gone to a certain school or believe certain things to be able to interpret God's word to understand what it means. It can be understood by you and me. The Lord's commandments enlighten the eyes. His statutes are a lamp. Proverbs 6.23 says, For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching is a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. The law is a light. Light enlightens objects around us. God's word enlightens the eyes. And it provides not only understanding for the mind that we can see it, but also enlightens one's entire condition, changes one's condition so that we are light, so that we are bright. It makes the mind clear and makes both the body and the mind healthy and fresh. God's word overcomes the darkness of the eyes, such as sorrow, melancholy, bewilderment, confusion, depression. It brings understanding where there is ignorance. It brings order where there is confusion and light where there is spiritual and moral darkness. Verse 9 says, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. This describes the fear of the Lord, which is another term for the law itself and the teachings of God. Fear speaks of a reverential awe for God. It is what God's revelation demands that we do. It affects that and it maintains that. It is the revealed way in which God is to be feared. It is the divine manual on how to worship. It's the religion of Yahweh. Proverbs 15.33 says, The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom. And humility comes before honor. And Deuteronomy 17, 19 says, And it shall be with him, God's law, and he shall read it in all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law and these statutes and doing them. Now also in verse 9, The fear of the Lord is clean and pure like silver and gold. Psalm 12, 6 says, The word of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Like silver, it endures forever, as opposed to all false, false doctrines, which shift and change according to what's going on around them. 
God's law is eternally and unalterably perfect and needs no updating, editing, reviding, revising, or additions. Beware of paraphrases of the Bible. There are some, like the message. They are a man's interpretation of God's word. They're helpful sometimes, perhaps, but they are not God's word. We need to be careful of what we read and what we put into our minds. It is God's word which is pure and clean. It is God's revelation for every generation, written by God's own spirit. It is infinitely wiser than anyone who dares to stand in judgment of it, and there are plenty that would, to anyone who thinks it's not relevant or enough for society. It judges those who seek to judge it. And because it's clean and flawless, the scripture endures forever. Well, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Scripture is true, altogether righteous. The word judgments or rules, again, refers to ordinances or divine verdicts from the bench of the Supreme Court or the Supreme Judge of the universe. In distinction from other laws and religions, God's word has an unchangeable moral foundation. Not so the Supreme Court of man's government which shifts and changes based upon the political whims of man. God does not. God is the judge. Deuteronomy 4.8 says, What a great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? There is none. God's laws are in accordance with what is right and appropriate. The eternal will of God attains a perfect form in his word. There is no need for additional revelations, visions, words of prophecy, or insights from modern culture, like the social justice movement, the BLM, or the like. In contrast to the rules of man, God's word is true and completely comprehensive. Rather than seeking something more than God's righteousness, explanations of how the gospel is different from that which is contained in the word, Christians need only study what they have. Scripture is sufficient. So when we find oppression at any level, whether it's individual or systemic oppression, it is through, is it through philosophies like critical theory or BLM that we need to engage, or is it through the sufficient word of God and the power of the gospel? Through Jesus, God is restoring everything that sin ruined. Jesus breaks down every barrier between men, there is no longer any distinction between Jew and Gentile, black, white, man, woman, whatever, whatever the distinction might be. Jesus restores everything that's sin ruined. That's what the word tells us. That's the solution to the problems that we have. Because you see, under the theories making the rounds these days, like social justice or critical theory, people believe we're basically good, but other people have messed me up. Okay? They're victims. Their condition is the result of the wrongful actions of others. And like Adam and Eve, they need to pass off blame because that salves their guilty conscience. So people deceive themselves that they are good, but somebody bad influenced them, or some oppressive race or class of people oppressed them, and that explains their woeful condition. But when we buy into this gospel, and believe me, it is a gospel that's being preached to us, we aid and abet sinners disavowing their sinfulness. It is anti-gospel, 
And it's anti-gospel because the entry point for the real gospel is man recognizing his sinful condition. Man has to realize that he is the reason he has problems and that he is a sinner of equal guilt to everyone around him. And when we allow people to define themselves as victims, they disavow responsibility for their own sins. They therefore cannot come to true salvation. Salvation is not available to them. So when we allow them to do that, we deny them the possibility of finding salvation. A person does not come to true salvation until he realizes that salvation is about being delivered from his own sins. Not the sins of others, but his own sins. And these theories and the people who propound them are false prophets, as Jesus warned us. They use parts of the truth, love, compassion, charity, equality, but they live out the critical piece. Man's sin and hopeless condition without Jesus Christ. And when we support these theories, we're preaching a false gospel. There is only one gospel, and that's what we talked about earlier. And friends, if you have not believed that gospel and put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, today is the day to do that. There is no better day than today than to accept that. Confess your sins in your heart. Turn from them. Turn towards God and towards his son, Jesus Christ. Now, certainly there are people that are victims. We are all victims to some extent because we live in a fallen world. We certainly have an obligation to be kind, to give mercy, justice, love, and compassion, doing good to all men, loving our neighbors as ourselves. But while we show sympathy, our message to the sinner must be, I want to do what I can to relieve your suffering if that's possible, but I'm much more concerned about the in eternal suffering that's awaiting you and God will not be merciful to you unless you come to him to receive forgiveness of your sins and that only happens through the gospel through the Lord Jesus Christ that would be the compassionate response but first we must all believe believe that the word of God is sufficient to address all of these problems we face today now have the church and Christians and me and you failed at times absolutely We must confess our own failures and sins and repent. Are we sinners? Absolutely. We're all sinners. We've got to confess our sins to one another and to God and beg forgiveness. That's what the word tells us. But do my own sins and shortcomings mean that I'm unable to speak to the sin in our culture? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's our obligation to do that. I've been commanded to do that by Jesus Christ. Because God tells us in Micah, of course, he has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? But God's word also tells us in Romans 10, 14, And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And for the 120 people or so that are in here today, there's another 3,000 out on the streets of Hot Springs that are not hearing the word of God today who need to hear the word of God and who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, I must also preach the good news of the gospel to those who are lost in their sins and condemned to hell. Do not preach a watered-down version of the gospel like Jesus loves you. The gospel requires a straightforward description of sin and the consequences of sin. It requires it because the law of the Lord is perfect. It tells us this is what it requires. God requires us to tell the lost not to leave it to someone else, not to leave it to a missions team or a street preacher or a Will Graham crusade. He tells us, and we know this because God 
God's word tells us this. Are we all doing this? The way to fight this war is not to exchange gotchas. It's not to have send around great memes, snarky comments, or privately complain about what's going on in the world today. We must fight to take back the church. We must know the word. Do not be afraid to tell people the word. Humbly ask to learn the word if you don't know it. If you don't feel equipped, there are people in this congregation that will come alongside you and meet with you and help you to do that. If you feel like you'd like to do that with other people, then there are people here that would love someone to come alongside. Hey, do you want to have a cup of coffee so that we can talk about this and we can decide what needs to happen? Are you fighting for the church? Does your life have a real impact for Christ? Let's pray. Father God, your word is perfect. Your word is true. Your word is sufficient for everything that comes up in our life, Lord. And it tells us that we must share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those around us, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the way to solve all of the world's problems, Lord God, not religions, not programs, not governments, but the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the courage to do that. We pray that you would bless this congregation. We ask this in Jesus' name.